Well, good morning again, and welcome to Christianity in Context. Uh, what we're doing at the 9 o'clock hour, again, all this school year, is looking at um, the way that Christians for 2,000 years have tried to put their faith into practice, tried to live it out in their culture and context, and, and tried to take ideas from the Bible and clarify them and distill them and bring them together in some kind of logical progression. And what we're practically doing along those lines is looking at um, things that Christians have written over the past 2,000 years, because things that people have written many years ago are often as relevant to today as they've ever been. There's really nothing new under the sun you know, when it comes to Christianity, just different packaging. And so there's just incredible wealth and wisdom and insight about how believers have tried to think about their faith, live out their faith, work through challenges to their faith, explain their faith to others. And that's what we're doing today. Today's a part two. And so we're looking at a document that we handed out that goes all the way back to the second century AD. So we're talking maybe a hundred years after Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection. And it's a letter from a disciple to a Roman pagan named Diognetus. Today is a part two. If you were with us last week, um, then there's context there. If you weren't with us last week, what I'd highly encourage you to do is sometime today, go and listen to last week's recording. It's about 35 minutes long. If you go to fellowshipoffaith.org and go to the FOF Plus page. That's where we keep all of our digital archives, podcasts, and past recordings of sermons and Bible classes and things like that. It's pretty easy to find Christianity in context there. Just find it, listen to it. It'll give you a lot more backdrop to this letter than what I'm going to do today, because where we're going today is picking up with where the clock forced us to cut off. We were going through the document together, we got to a certain point, and we're just going to pick right up there and keep going through it line by line, trying to see how did this second century follower of Jesus try to explain and make relevant, if you will, to a way that he would understand this guy named Diognetus. How do I help this Roman pagan understand Christianity in a winsome way? That's the heart and soul of it. So, a couple of housekeeping things before we jump in. As promised, I have extra copies today. If you brought your copy from last week, it is the exact same thing. But does anyone need a copy today? Put your hand up and I'll come around and get that to you. Here you go. Anyone over here? I got a hand over here. Got a hand back there. Fantastic. Here you go. Take that bottom one. There you are. Anyone else need a copy? Jenny, you need one? There you go. No, it's all good. Anyone else? Roger. Okay, we're getting to the point where the remaining ones are going up for auction here pretty soon. So anyone else? Simon, you want to hand that down? Great. Great. Anyone else need a copy? Going once. Going twice. They're now 20 bucks a piece. All right. Here you go. Fantastic. So, because we spent so much time talking from a 30,000-foot perspective last week, and because this document is relatively short, and because we really only got to, like, line six, what I'm going to do is, like, just hyper-read lines one through six again quick, 
But then when we pick up where we left off, we'll kind of go more slowly. Let's just get the context from the beginning again. And I'll just do this out loud so you don't have to take five minutes to read on your own. But uh, regardless, here we go. He says to this guy named Diognetus, Christians are not distinguished from the rest of mankind by country or by speech or by dress, for they do not dwell in cities of their own or use a different language or practice a peculiar, meaning like a, a different life than the rest of you guys, right? This knowledge of theirs has not been proclaimed by the thought and effort of restless men. They are not champions of a human doctrine as some men are. But while they dwell in Greek or barbarian cities according uh, as each man's lot has been cast and follow the customs of the land in clothing and food and other manners of daily life, yet in the condition of citizenship, which they exhibit is wonderful and admittedly strange. They live in countries of their own, but simply as wanderers, sojourners, hobos is the word that you want to put in there, if you remember last week. And um, they share in the life of citizens. They endure the lot of foreigners, meaning, you know, like your lot in life. Every foreign land is to them a fatherland, and every fatherland a foreign land. They marry like the rest of the world. They breed children but they do not cast their offspring adrift. And that's where we left off last time. And what he's doing is showing that Christians are very much like you and me. And when I say like you and me, I'm talking to a pagan now. You're not a Christian, right? Hey, let me explain Christianity to you. Christians are going to look like you and me. They're going to act like you and me. They're going to dress like you and me. They're going to kind of fit in, but there is at the same time going to be something different about them that's just going to feel off, strange, weird. The more you get to know them and the more that you watch them live by a different pattern of life that you really can't put your thumb on unless you know what's going on behind the surface. In other words, you might sum it up like this. He's going, you know what? These Christians you're so weird about, they're the best neighbors you're ever going to have. You want one moving in next door, all right? They're going to be friendly. They're going to mow their lawn. They're not going to steal your stuff. They're not going to be revving their Harleys at 2 a.m. Okay, that, that's the idea of what he's trying to communicate to this guy. And yet, there's something different about them. And he leaves it off with not casting their children adrift. And we talked all kinds of of things that that could have meant last week, particularly in the second century AD and how people had to deal with poverty and unwanted children and how the Christians kind of filled that gap in many amazing ways. So let's keep going from there. They have a common table, but yet not common. Now here's where we're going to start going slower. When he says they have a common table, table. Again, what he's arguing is they sit down for dinner like you and me. They gather together for parties to share food together like you and me, and yet their table is not common. And I'm just going to kind of try to tease this out of you guys, but what what do you think he might be referring to when he says they have a common table and yet not common? In fact, I wouldn't even say they include elements like communion. They practice communion. 
we, I think, tend to lose sight of this. And I think even the Roman Catholic Church, which is very vehement about a centrality of communion in their worship, even loses sight of it, of how central this thing called communion was in early church practice. In fact, what they did as worship really seemed to orchestrate and surround a centerpiece, which was a shared meal. Now you notice I didn't use the term communion there, and that's intentional because we have been programmed to think that communion equals this. So when we commune, what that means is we tack on seven to eight minutes more in a worship service. We play on our phones while people sing a song. We stand in line when an usher dismisses us to get a tasteless two-calorie cracker and a little sip of juice, right? I, I, I don't know how we can butch the way of Christ more than what we do right here. It's, it's like, I'm not saying it's not valid or that it's not like like symbolizing something, but it is such a far cry from what it looked like and meant in the early church. Do you know what they called it in, in the early church? And you can even find this in like Jude. Jude is one of Jesus' brothers. He wrote the book of Jude, Judas, but that's weird and confusing, so they just shortened it to Jude. Anyway, second to the last book of the Bible. Do you know what he calls communion? Love feasts. Now, first of all, if that doesn't like strike 1969 into your heart, and, and you know, that, that kind of raises all kinds of connotations. Like, can you imagine if we like did marketing that way at Fellowship of Faith? Hey, and on the first and third Sundays of the month, we have love feasts. Invite your friend to the love feast. How would that change the demographic of FOF? What would that look like? What would you be expecting coming in? Or is it like, oh my gosh, time to find a new church, Right? Well, if it's raising that kind of connotation for you, it also raised that connotation for pagans back then. Because one of the key things that Christians were accused of was incestuous orgies. Where does that come from? Well, let me put it this way and you'll go, oh... Have you ever heard the term brother and sister in Christ? Have you ever had a Christian call you, hey, brother? I mean, I'd kind of do that casually. I don't know if you do. You see that throughout the Bible. They address each other as brothers and sisters. Now, this is piggybacking off something Jesus said and did. He was teaching his disciples at one point, and it said, they said, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. And depending on what gospel, you'll get more detail. Some are like they're they think he's out of his mind. They're trying to take control of him, trying to rein him in. And he goes, these are my brothers right here and my mother right here. And what he's indicating is that there's meant to be a, a, a unity, a connection, and a closeness among Christians that even transcends family. To put it another way, water is supposed to be closer than blood. Are, are you with me? If you have been baptized into Christ, there is, in a sense, meant to be a closer relationship with one another that, that we're there for each other more, we depend on each other more, we're putting up with each other more, we're in it for the long haul with each other more, even than actual blood biological siblings. So if you have, now, now hear this from a pagan perspective, 
if you have a bunch of brothers and sisters gathering for a love feast, well, what are you expecting is going to happen? You see the pagan thinking on that? They just didn't get it. And I think that's a really good lesson to learn anytime you think about your faith and talk about your faith. We've been doing a series here called Weird Ideas. The entire year is just called Different. And I'm going to tell you what I've enjoyed doing about this series, but which has also been the key challenge. And I think this document is bringing it out. Who do you think gathers in Christian churches on Sunday mornings in greater um, percentages, Christians or non-Christians? Christians, right? There's certainly non-Christians gathering with us every week. That's fantastic. I want to see even more. I think that's what the church should be, is, is welcoming them in. But the greater propensity of people are those with a, a, a faith and loyalty to Jesus Christ. And, and often with that, do you think that more people who are gathering on a Sunday morning have been Christian for a long period of time or a short period of time? I'm just curious what your gut tells you. Yeah, long. Long. How do you define long? I don't know how you define long, but I think most people who are gathering here on a Sunday morning have been a practicing Christian for more than three years. All right? There's some that it's been less. The longer you're a Christian, the less weird Christian ideas become. And you almost start to forget how things sound to those who aren't Christian. Take Love Feast. We have a table that is common. It looks like normal food because when they would gather, it wasn't this. They would gather around a meal. That's what we're trying to do on Monday, Thursday, by the way, is emulate that a bit more. And when they would gather around that meal, their issues then were not things like, well, are people ready for this? Or how do we get people to participate? It was like, geez, like, you know, we're sitting there eating and drinking and some people are imbibing too much and they're getting drunk. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 11 going, yeah, you probably shouldn't be getting drunk when you're sharing the communal meal together. It's, it's a whole different set of challenges and abuses that they had. Our table is not common. That's what he's picking up on in getting at. There's something that we do different here. But let me throw one more log on this fire before we move on. I would argue that most of us, if not all of us, spend 99% of our time eating with people we like if we're eating with someone at all. Now, sometimes we eat alone, right? Take that out of the equation. But 99% of the time, we eat with people that we like or that we want to like us, which to me is almost one and the same category. If you want to put it to the test, just walk into any middle school or high school cafeteria. Think about the people that you invite over to your home. You know, when you gather together with people, okay, some of you are going, well, no, I really don't like my brother or something like that. You, you know, I mean, I, but, but I, I get family obligation, but put that aside. I mean, you invite your friends to come eat with you or people that you think, hey, I, I kind of like these people. I'd like to be friends with these people, right? If you go out to eat on a date, 
right? Sometimes you get suckered in and you feel bad for someone, but oftentimes if you go out to eat with someone, it's because it's like, hey, I kind of like you, and I hope you kind of like me, and I hope we like each other more. Christians, by design, are very different. You do life in community with your enemies, natural-born enemies, anyway, because if you have people coming together from every ethnic background, cultural background, national background, and therefore ideal value background, if you will, people with different ways of seeing the world, different lives, different experiences growing up, therefore different things that they think is important. I mean, you put that together and it's, you know, what do you do, married couples, when that person is different from you and values different things? Well, you do a few things. You fight about it. You get bitter about it. You get passive-aggressive about it. You try to subvert it. You try to undermine them. And then you finally assassinate them when it doesn't work, right? I mean, you know, sadly, I'm not that far off the mark. Maybe the assassination thing, I hope. But divorce isn't, right? Is it any different than the body of Christ coming together, trying to live together closer than those kinds of family relationships? How do I put up with you? How do I deal with you? I really don't like you, and yet we're brothers and sisters in Christ. You with me? So when Christians would eat together, guess what? The people they don't like are there. And much of what the New Testament letters are written about is trying to teach Christians, how do you get along? How do you do life together? How do you live as one with each other in the way Jesus described when you clearly just don't share anything and can't stand each other. This has huge ramifications for how you start to view what church is supposed to be about and Christian gatherings are supposed to be about and who you even have, like, loyalties with. Um, I'm going to open up a can of worms on this. I don't care um, because it's fun. But, you know, it's been fun for me listening to the debate over the Israelite... Palestinian or the Israel-Palestinian war going on right now and who's to blame and who's to fault and what should Christians do and what side should you be on and all that kind of thing. And it's kind of fascinating to step back from the way the world discusses it and go, huh, I've got brothers and sisters who are in Israel. I've also got brothers and sisters who are in Palestine. And so how do I respond to this and think about this and interact with this whole kind of debate of what's going on when I literally have family on both sides of a war happening right there? There's a guy named, uh, um, I believe I'm getting his first name, Anthony Hauerwas, who is just this, this fascinating Christian writer. And he is a pacifist. I am not. But I really respect where they come from and, and see how they come to their conclusions. Um, and he's just like, man, how would the world be different if Christians just refused to kill each other in any capacity whatsoever? And then when you start thinking about family on both sides of a divide like that, huh, wild. Anyway, one little line, but so much implication coming out of it. I talked way too much on that, but it's kind of important. Let's keep going. Sound good? They exist in the flesh, 
but they live not after the flesh. We talked about all these contrasts, all these paradoxes. They spend their existence upon earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, and in their own lives they surpass the laws. What's that mean? Christians do it better, right? Most laws, most laws that exist around the world are pretty common. I don't care if you go to India, China, Palestine, Israel, or America. I bet there's a law about not murdering people, right? About not stealing, about things like that. And if you're motivated by more than just not getting in trouble, but by a higher power and higher cause, you you try to live it with an integrity. This has actually been one of the key challenges of secular communist countries in the 20th and even 21st century where they look at the social fabric of the nation. Uh, you, you know, Soviet Union is a key example of this and, and has been. Um, China is struggling in their own way with it right now. But when you've completely removed a transcendent higher morality and cause that's attached to God out of your nation's ethos and existence and belief system, what motivates your people to be good people? Because it ain't human nature, <laughs> Right? And, and, and they, they find themselves struggling with it, going, you can't police people into morality. You just can't get enough police, and then you can't keep your police uh, as people of integrity. And you can't keep your politicians um, off the corruption scale. If there isn't a moral fiber that's transcendent, society just doesn't function according to law. It's just, what can I get away with until I learn to see which camera's looking or how to avoid being tracked. Yeah, Bob. Uh, fear-based morality versus love-based morality. Yeah, yeah, and, and love is going to motivate you far more than fear-based morality any day, at least more consistently, more thoroughly, and more deeply, right? Anyway. They love all men and are persecuted by all. Aren't these just like great contrasts that he's setting up? They are unknown and they are condemned. No one cares about them. No one knows them. But once you know you do, just kill them, right? We, we hate you even though you're completely off the radar and completely unimportant in this world. They are put to death and they gain new life. They are poor and make many rich. Isn't that fascinating? Not themselves, but they make many rich. They lack everything. And in everything, they abound They are dishonored, and their dishonor becomes their glory. They are reviled and are justified. They are abused and they bless. They are insulted and repay insult with honor. They do good and are punished as evildoers. And in their punishment, they rejoice as gaining new life therein. What sense does this make? None. Unless you've experienced it. And then it makes all the sense in the world. The Jews war against them as aliens, foreigners, right? And the Greeks persecute them. And they that hate them can state no ground for their enmity. Christians are awful. Christians are this. Christians are that. And then when you kind of start pushing it to a specific Christian, how come I can't make the charge stick? You get the idea? It's easy to come up with a label and brand a label that just exists theoretically. It's a lot harder to actually condemn a specific human being isn't it? Again, we're talking in generalities here, but yeah. Uh, that line struck me 
is probably the most, the, the strongest 21st century parallel. Mm. I don't like it. I hate that. I hate that guy. What? Why? I don't know. I just do. You know, it's just, you hear that so much now. If you realize 2,000 years ago, it was just like, why do, why do you hate Christians? I don't know. I just do. Yeah. And you can't put a finger on it. They can't really explain themselves. There's just something so emotional and visceral in reaction to this, this seditious movement that's seen as a threat to good society. Yeah, yeah. A lot of commonalities, right? Um, in a word, I, I, I'm going to hold off on that. Um, Roman numeral six. Here's what I'd like to do. He just went back and forth with all these parallels. Boom, 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 boom. This, not that. This, that. This, that. Like, like these paradoxes, if you will. What I'd like you to do is, and you can do this in large, you can do this in small, but please do it with at least someone. Um, just huddle up for a few minutes, and here's what I want you guys to share together. Which of those lines most struck you, like, like hits you in the soul and the gut the most, and maybe why? could be the one that convicts you the worst. It could be the one that you just get lit up about the most. It could be the one that you see as being the strongest peril. I don't really care which way you go with it. But just have a quick discussion with a few people on that about which of those paradox couplets strikes home. And then we'll come back together in about three minutes. Let me share a passage with you this morning. This comes out of the Sermon on the Mount. It's very early on. Here's what Jesus says. You are the salt of the earth. You've heard this before, right? You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, it is not good for anything except to be thrown out in the manure pile and trampled by men. Now, I don't know about you. I don't like to trample in manure, but the idea is there. He chases it by saying this, you are the light of the world. You've heard that? You know what I love about that? Jesus also says this, I am the light of the world. So let me ask, is Jesus the light of the world or are you the light of the world? Yes, right? <laughs> Welcome to the paradoxes and the way that the scriptures work. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. People don't light a lamp and put it under a bowl. No, instead they put it on its stand so it gives light for everyone in the house. And then he concludes it by saying, in the same way, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. Here's why I bring this passage up. Jesus' teachings are meant to be built on and developed. Now, for some, that sounds very... It gives them a yellow flag in their mind. We here at Fellowship of Faith are a church body that believes that the Bible is the final authority when it comes to matters dealing with the truth about God, the human condition, life, and morality, etc., etc. We say it's the inspired and errant word of God. So there's this always go back to the Bible mentality, and that's very prevalent in conservative Protestantism, right? Sometimes, though, I think it makes us biblicists. And what I mean by that is people who operate in such a way that, 
We only do what the Bible says and we only go so far as what the Bible delineates and nothing out of that is permitted. Here's one of the more extreme examples um, of how this this mentality operates. And these are true examples. Um, I'll give you two. One is this, Church of God, not instrumental. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, that's a church body. Now, when you hear Church of God non-instrumental, if you're unfamiliar with this church body, it may lead you to think that being called non-instrumental is some kind of technical term, meaning that some kind of like theological idea embedded there. No, it just means they don't use instruments in church. What kind of instruments? Like organs or pianos or or, or guitars or, or keyboards or drums or anything like that. Why? because you don't really find a New Testament example of them using instruments in worship. And so, we stay within the biblical framework. Does that make sense? Here's another example. I've shared this frequently, but my wife grew up in a church body that is a conservative branch of the Mennonites called the Apostolic Christian Church of America, the ACs. And uh, again, amazing brothers and sisters in Christ, you want to meet people who get it and who love the Lord, go swim in that church. But because of that hermeneutic, um, that, that interpretive approach, they also practice it in strict lines. So, it says at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. So if you go to their church on a Sunday morning, you know what they do? They kiss you. They kiss each other. Bill, man, brother, I am glad you're here today, you know? (laughs) Now, I will say this. They really get the short end of the stick. They're hypocritical in it because they will only kiss same sex. Like, if you're going to do this the right way, man, we got to be, like, 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 we we, got to be embracing the love feast side of this thing, you know, and and, and kissing across gender. No, 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 none of that. So there's no, like, oh, there's a cute girl or there's a cute guy, right? And I could finally, like, you know, some awkward teenager like Plant went on or, no, no, they're a heady on that, that kind of equation. But, but, but do you get what I mean? The teachings of Jesus are meant to be developed. And it's dangerous because you can develop them to false conclusions or along, or along false lines that end up distorting what Jesus taught. And so you have to be on guard, but it is equally dangerous not to develop them at all because it leaves you in this little box that Jesus never intended. If you don't believe me, he says, it's good that I'm going. I will send you the spirit and he will teach you all things. And he goes on and on about how that's meant to guide the development of the church. And so what does that have to do with everything? Simply this line right here. In a word, what the soul is in the body, Christians are in the world. Isn't that great? You are not going to find that line in the Bible. You are not going to find that line articulated by Jesus in print anywhere. What are they doing? Well, they're taking a passage like I just shared with you a moment ago out of the Sermon on the Mount and developing it contextualizing it, repackaging it and helping people understand it in a new way. And isn't that like, a, like just filled with life? Isn't that like a great way to describe what it means to be salt and light? Isn't that a great way to describe what a Christian is meant to be in the world? You are the soul of the world. That without Christians, this world 
is a dead and lifeless body. That's what he's saying there. You know, maybe, I, I almost see a playoff of we are in this world but not of this world when he gets into the whole sojourner thing earlier. Like every land is a fatherland and yet every fatherland is a foreign land and we're sojourners and we live here but our citizenship is in heaven. But, I mean, at some level all this stuff starts to intertwine, doesn't it? But if you're an unwelcome sojourner, you're going to be kicked out. Well, yeah, that's true. That's true. You don't necessarily want that hobo sleeping in your backyard, right? Yeah. You're the soul of the world. He's telling this to a pagan. Guys, you got to understand what we're about, what this movement is supposed to be like, and you don't have to be afraid of it. It's not a threat. No, we are bringing life and meaning and laughter and joy and transcendence into something that is missing it without us. That's what he's trying to convince this second century Roman pagan of. The soul is spread through all the members of the body and Christians through all the cities of the world. Like, where's your soul? Is your soul your brain? Can, can, can you dissect your soul, which is like right over your like ventricle right here? No, it just kind of permeates you, doesn't it? In the same way, you find Christians permeating the entire globe. What did Jesus say? Go make disciples of what? All nations, right? And of course, it was witnessed early on. The soul dwells in the body, but it is not the body. Christians dwell in the world, but they are not the world. The soul itself, invisible, is detained in a body which is visible. Yeah, we're stuck here with the rest of you guys. Like, we can't go have out-of-body experiences, can we? We live in the world. The soul itself invisible is detained yet, so Christians are recognized as being in the world, but their religious life remains invisible. That which makes them tick, that's what the Spirit of God is doing inside of them. It isn't measurable. It isn't even discernible. You can see the effects of it, but you can't actually see it, right? Can you weigh your soul can you put an LED meter on you to say, how strong is my soul today, right? It just doesn't work that way. And he goes on, for time's sake, the soul, when it is stinted, deprived of food and drink, thrives the better. It's kind of the spirit about fasting. And I don't mean Christian fasting, just in general. Self-denial seems to make the spirit stronger. So Christians, when they are punished, increase daily all the more. You see how he's making all these analogies and trying to help it make sense? So great is the position to which God has appointed them and which it is not lawful for them to refuse. For this is no earthly discovery, as I said, which was delivered into their charge. It is no mortal idea which they regard themselves bound so diligently to guard. It is no stewardship of merely human mysteries with which they have been entrusted. We're not just passing on knowledge here. This isn't something we discovered in a lab or that the philosophers have handed down to us. No, but God himself in very truth, the almighty and all-creating and invisible God, himself from heaven planted among men and established in their hearts the truth and the word of God, the holy and comprehensible word sending um, one servant, as one might imagine, as a ruler, an angel, or, or one who administers earthly things. No, 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 none of that. 
but came down as the very maker of heaven himself. In other words, you're not going to discover this on your own. No one's going to come up with this idea called Christianity of their own devices. You can't study enough and, and analyze the universe enough to finally discern it. He's saying God finally has to show it to you at some level. God has to reveal it. And without that revelation of God, you're, you're never going to quite get it, make sense of it. We're basically doing just what God showed us. I ain't the smartest person in the room. I don't have a pedigree of degrees. Can you see what like Mathetes is saying to Diognetus? He's like, I'm just showing you what God in heaven showed us. And when God reveals himself, it's kind of next level. And so I'm just following it as best I can. And the rest just kind of chases it out about how God himself came down also in the most surprising of ways, not as a king, not as a ruler, but as a peasant one. And that's how he goes about trying to share Christianity with a pagan in his day and age. And so I think maybe ultimately the takeaway I hope from sampling this document together is this. Certainly to broaden your perspective of Christian thinking and understanding in history. And I see immense value in that. But more so, Maybe to get you thinking. How do I not take for granted that people just get what Christianity is about in this day and age? Including my kids, including my spouse, including those in my very family who might only have a nominal understanding of it or think they understand it because they were brought to church as a kid but never really experienced it, never really had faith translate. We're never born again. You know? How do I start to see the world through their eyes a little bit and see how weird and strange this might be. And how do I go about trying to help it make sense to them in a way that they would understand, resonate with, go, oh, I'm starting to get it now because that's what a soul does in a body or salt and light does in the world. And what this guy is so bent on doing for his pagan neighbor or friend. Anyway, we're out of time. God bless. We got a new document coming next week. Um, thanks for being a part.